James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And before we get into our uh, preaching this morning, let's ask the Lord to give life to his word uh, as we study it together. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through it. And now we have the privilege to study it together. Lord, we need your spirit, though, to come and teach us the things that we need to learn. Lord, your, your word is, means nothing to us apart from your spirit opening our eyes to see what it means, to understand it, to make the necessary application to us. And so we pray that you would send your spirit this morning and do that work in our hearts. That our time together would be profitable, not because of anything great I have to say, but because of how you will speak through me as we look at your word together this morning. Pray that Christ would be magnified in our sight together. And that even this time of studying your word would be an act of worship to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we begin our study through the book of James by looking this morning at simply the first verse. The book of James is a very interesting book in a a couple respects. One is, and I think you'll find this if you have already read through it in preparation for this or hopefully in coming weeks as you read through the book hopefully many times, I think one of the things you'll, you'll be struck with is the number of verses that you're very familiar with. James is full of verses that, that many of us have known for a long time and, and perhaps we've memorized many of them. A lot of the verses are, are well known to us. But I think even as I've come to approach the book of James in recent weeks in preparation for this, You know, I haven't really studied through the book of James or I'm not really familiar with the book of James as a whole. Yeah, there's lots of things in it that I, that I know. Lots of, you know, one verse here and one verse there that I've, that I've memorized. 
But yet, the book as a whole is, is a bit unfamiliar to me, and maybe the same is, is uh, true for you as well. And hopefully our study through it will, will help us to see, if nothing else, to kind of put those verses that we know and we've memorized kind of in context, to see what was it that James was trying to communicate that we now can grasp so tightly and be confident of, even to the point of memorizing it and finding those verses uh, to be helpful. Another interesting thing about the book of James is that from really the early church, even through such great preachers as Martin Luther himself, really struggled with accepting the book as a part of the canon of Scripture. And we're going to look a little later at some of the reasons why uh, this, was, this was the case. But I hope that, that we, as we study the book of James, will grow in our, not only our understanding of the book, but our appreciation of what God wants to communicate to us through it. I think there are some really rich things uh, that God wants to teach us. And I pray that, that even though there were those who were reluctant to accept this as being the word of God, hopefully God, by his spirit, will prove it to be so uh, by working through it in our hearts as we study through it. So as I said, our, our text this morning is simply the first verse of the book of James. And if you've already looked down, you see that all that is is the greeting, a simple salutation um, to the, the recipients of this book. Now you might be thinking, wow, I've never heard a, a message on just the greeting of a New Testament epistle. Well, we're in the same boat together because I've never preached a message on just the greeting of a New Testament epistle. But it's been so neat to study through this because I think there are some really important things that we can learn even just from this greeting as we look together at it. And also, in the second half of the message, we're going to do a little bit of an overview, a preview of, of what we can expect to find uh, in coming weeks as we study through it. So let's jump into this and, and read together. You follow along as I read uh, James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now this verse gives us two important pieces of information which are going to be key to our understanding of this letter. It answers the question, who wrote it? And also, who it was written to. So first, let's take a few minutes now uh, to look at who the author of this letter is. Obviously, it's James. But who? Who is James? Which James? Because in the New Testament, there's really four men by the name of James who are listed or named in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, three of them are mentioned together in one verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 13. You don't have to turn there, but listen as I read Acts chapter 1. I'll read 12 through 14. Now this is right after Jesus has ascended to heaven and the, the disciples and, and the Lord's followers have gathered together, and you remember that they will eventually replace Judas uh, by naming another representative, another uh, disciple or apostle. But here they are, verse 12, Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So here we have three guys named James, all listed together in one verse. 
So the first James mentioned in this verse, you probably quickly recognize as being one-third of Jesus' inner circle. You know that uh, Jesus, when he, in his earthly ministry, uh, kind of had almost tears of, of those that were following him. And you know that Peter, James, and John were, were really that inner circle. They were there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, uh, enjoying that special blessing of Jesus Christ transfigured before them. You remember they were also there in that darkest hour of Jesus' life as he was in agony praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John. Of course, James and John were brothers, the sons of Zebedee. So that's the first James uh, that's listed here in in this verse. And he, we know from Acts 12, was ultimately executed for his allegiance to Christ uh, by Herod. The second James mentioned in this verse is another of Jesus' twelve disciples. And he is James the son of Alphaeus, not to be confused with James the son of Zebedee. Now the only time this James is ever mentioned in Scripture is in a list of disciples like this. There's a couple other times where he is named, but only in a list of disciples. The the third James, rather, uh, mentioned here is simply mentioned as being the father of, of Judas, this disciple. And it seems the only reason he's mentioned at all is to differentiate this Judas from Judas Iscariot who had uh, betrayed uh, Jesus Christ and turned him over to the authorities. Those three James are mentioned in this verse. The fourth James mentioned in the New Testament is the half-brother of Jesus, a biological son of Joseph and Mary. So which is the writer of, of the letter of James? Or maybe it's some other, other, some, another otherwise unknown James that we know nothing else about and is never mentioned, but yet he wrote this letter. That one's highly unlikely. And also highly unlikely are, are the, the second, or the, yeah, the second uh, two that we mentioned, James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, only mentioned as the father of Judas. While it's possible that one of those two wrote it, uh, highly unlikely because it, it doesn't seem like they would have risen to the stature of, of being one who... Uh, was recognized as an author of Scripture uh, and, and the author of a letter that was recognized as Scripture. Now, the Apostle James, the brother of John, part of that inner circle of, of Jesus' disciples, he would have, would have perhaps had a, a very significant role in the early church and would have, would have risen to that level of stature among the early church to have his writings respected and, and accepted on the level of, of being the Word of God. The only difficulty is, as I just said, he was executed um, early on uh, after Christ had ascended to heaven and the, er- and the church began. And so while it's possible that he wrote this letter, uh, we th- history tells us that he was executed in about the year uh, AD 42. It's likely that this letter was written sometime, not too far, but probably after that. Uh, so he was probably not the writer. So that leaves us really with uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus. as the writer of of this letter of James. I think this really is significant, that that the brother of Jesus was used to be a writer of Scripture. Just to to show us why this is significant, let's look at a couple considerations about, about James here that he really reveals in this verse. First of all, we know James was the half brother of Jesus. According to the New Testament, Joseph and Mary had at least four other sons and multiple daughters um, after Jesus uh, was born. Matthew 13, 55, we we hear those who were were following Jesus, those who who are critiquing Jesus, 
said, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his, Mar- his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his, all his sisters with us? So Jesus, here his brother James is mentioned, and he also mentioned a couple other times through the New Testament. But think about the uniqueness of being the brother of Jesus, of having that experience of growing up with the only perfect man who has ever lived. I got to thinking about how interesting and uh, probably difficult that would be uh, for someone to grow up with Jesus. And obviously I don't think, I think even from seeing the interaction with with Mary and Joseph with Jesus back in Luke chapter 2, remember when they left him behind or he stayed behind in the temple and just their interaction there, I think it's, I think, I think we're, we're forced to, to say that they, they did not really recognize maybe that he was in fact perfect in all that he did. I think even in there you can, you can kind of sense their frustration with him uh, because you know, he wasn't cooperating with, with their agenda and yet he revealed to them that he was about doing a, a higher agenda. He was about his father, his heavenly father's uh, business. But you can just imagine what it was like for Jesus' brothers and sisters growing up with him. Um, now let's kind of think about you, you can't get away with anything around around Jesus. You know, for parents, your your kids, you know, maybe they're in the other room and you know there's an argument. And you go in there and they're, they're kind of pointing at each other. Hey, it's his fault. It's his fault. Well, there wasn't any you know there wasn't any way that you could say, hey, it was Jesus' fault. You know, I mean, you couldn't get away with anything. You, know, you couldn't pass the blame on onto Jesus. And I think Scripture indicates this, and I think there was a probably a good bit of resentment toward Jesus. By his brothers, we we don't find Jesus' family, his siblings, following him uh, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, the times that we find them, it's almost like they're they're getting in the way. And we'll we'll look at a, a place where that we find Jesus interacting with his family a little bit later on. So it's per- perhaps not surprising to to find that they weren't really all on board with what Jesus was doing. Perhaps there was quite a bit of resentment between Jesus' siblings. And him, um, not because of anything that he did wrong to them, but just uh, their their lack of faith in, in him. Perhaps they had even cautiously hoped that maybe this is maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is the one that's going to rescue us from this Roman occupation, just like all those other ones that were following it. Perhaps they cautiously hoped that okay, maybe well maybe this he will be the guy. But then when all that came was his execution on the cross as a criminal. I think it's significant. We don't find any of his, of his siblings there at the cross. We, we find his mother alone. None of his siblings were even there uh, at that moment of, of uh, the darkest hour, even for their mother. They're, they're nowhere to be found following Jesus. But according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, Jesus appeared to James following his resurrection, and it must have totally changed the course of James's life and ministry. Listen along, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And I think it's significant to note who it was that Jesus himself appeared to. Because if you study the New Testament at all, you know that there was a, a marked difference between those disciples prior to and, and even through Jesus' death. They all scattered, you remember. 
And those that we find then in Acts 2, following the resurrection of Christ, they were willing to die for, the, for this guy. So him appearing after his resurrection to them had a profound impact on their life and their ministry and service for Jesus Christ. Where at the moment of Jesus' death, they all scattered, they fled. But then after he appeared to them, proving that he had raised from the dead, they were willing to follow him. They were willing to, to leave all for him. And, and most of them were willing to be executed for their allegiance to him. So Jesus appeared to his own half-brother, James, and it had a profound impact on him. Instead of foolishly rejecting God's Messiah that, that he had been graciously privileged to grow up with, to be around, to interact with, this James became a significant leader by the grace of God in the early church. In fact, we won't take time uh, to go back and read it right now. We find him performing an important function at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 when Gentiles were being uh, added to the church and the Jews were questioning, how can this be? How can there be Gentiles added? How can there be Gentiles being saved? Isn't this a Jewish thing? And you remember how Paul and, and some other leaders of the church came and gathered together to decide, what are we going to do with these Gentiles who are being saved? And we find James right there being the moderator for that council, a very significant leader in the early church. And one who would be, in the, in the eyes of those receiving this letter, who would be on the level and of a stature to have his writings recognized as, as the very words of God, as God inspired them. So that gives us a little bit of biographical information about James, our author, the half-brother of Jesus. But I think our text here in James 1.1 leads us to another very important consideration. Not only was James the half-brother of Jesus, but James here identifies himself not as the half-brother of Jesus, but as a servant of Jesus. In fact, this is one of the reasons why many scholars doubted the authorship of James, uh, because he didn't refer to himself and identify himself as the brother of Jesus. I mean, after all, if you're going to write something that you say is from, from God and the Lord, why don't, you, why don't you say, hey, I am the brother of Jesus. You've got to listen to me now, right? But James recognized that his authority to write to the people of God did not rest on his familial relationship with Jesus as his brother. But his authority to write rested on his relationship with Jesus as a sinner who had been saved from the wrath of God and granted a position as the Lord's servant to accomplish his will. Perhaps James remembered back to an experience he had during Jesus' earthly ministry when Jesus made a pretty radical statement. Mark chapter 3, verse 31, we find Jesus' mother and his brothers coming to the place where Jesus was ministering at that time and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What must James and his other siblings have thought about that statement when Jesus made it? Here Jesus is rejecting his, his blood family for these people that he's ministering to that are following him. Perhaps that only served to fuel that resentment that they might have had uh, for Jesus. 
But it seems that by the time James wrote this letter, he had fully grasped, grasped what it was that Jesus was talking about. Our identity, our primary identity, is our relationship to Christ. We, have been, we who have been purchased by His blood as His own possession are now His servants. Our primary identity is our relationship to Christ. We've been purchased by His blood as His own possession. And we are now His servants. James got that. For what, whatever happened, we don't know much about what happened, but between the time of Jesus' life and His death and the time that He wrote this letter, something radical happened in James's life. And he came to the realization that he was Jesus' servant because he had been bought by the blood of Christ and was now called to accomplish his will. And I think that's really, really significant for us. Remind, being reminded of our primary identification as being in Christ. What does this mean for us right now? Two important questions just for us to consider. And maybe small groups can kind of flesh this out a little bit more. Are you more identified with something or someone else than you are with Christ? Are you identified more with something or someone else than you are with Christ? Are there other relationships that are more important to us right now than our relationship with Christ? Are there other relationships that are more important to us right now than our relationship with Christ? It seems from even James' identification of himself, just a simple greeting here, and yet he identifies himself not as the brother of Jesus, but as a servant of Jesus. He understands the, the nature of his true relationship with Jesus. It's not his, his blood relationship, but almost, no pun intended, it's his blood relationship through the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. If our answer to either of these questions is yes, if we are more identified with someone or something else than we are with Christ, or if, our, if there are other relationships that are more important to us right now than our relationship with Christ, we need to grasp the gospel reality that as a child of God, our, identi our identity is wrapped up in Christ. We have been crucified with Him. We have been buried with Him. And we have been raised with Him, which enables us to obey His teaching regarding discipleship. Listen to the words of Jesus, Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, another very radical statement made by Jesus. That in order to follow Jesus, in order to follow Christ, to be his disciple, we have to leave all these other things behind. Now, we don't have time to spend on this verse, but I think you realize that we don't actually leave them all behind. We don't actually hate all these people. But, we, but Christ must be the supreme, the, the supreme being in our affections much higher than all these earthly, these earthly relationships that we have to be his disciple. I think James understood that. 
through the grace of God working in his life to the point now he identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is he writing to? Who are the recipients of this letter? Well, according to verse 1 again here, he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So who is this group of people? It's a little bit ambiguous here. Who who is this group of people? Who are these people? Well, the use of the phrase 12 tribes would seem to be a reference to Jewish people, right? I mean, after all, Israel was divided into 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob. Seems like it's a reference to Jewish people or the nation of Israel. The interesting thing is typically, though, when Jewish people are referred to in this way, it's, it's as the 12 tribes of Israel or the, the 12 tribes of Jacob. There's kind of that, that additional qualifier on the end of that. We don't find that here. It's just the 12 tribes. So it seems as though James doesn't have in mind Jewish people exclusively, but perhaps and likely a broader audience. And really quickly, for a clue, uh, I think, as to what he was thinking here, we need to understand a little bit more about how the, the term 12 tribes was used and even how, how are we to understand the 12 tribes. Again, remember, Gentiles have been brought into, um, into the church now. We talk, alluded back to that from Acts 15. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 19, verses 27 and 28. Then Peter said in reply, See, Speaking here to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in a new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus here clearly speaking of some eschatological event that will take place in the future, even beyond where we sit today. And we don't have time to to discuss all of, all of the, the eschatological implications uh, of this. But I think it's very clear from the New Testament uh, that the church is at least a, a part of a new or a true Israel. So I don't think we want to limit James' allusion here to the 12 tribes as simply to Jewish people. I mean, if that was the case, what good would it be for us to be studying this book now? I mean, unless we were Jewish people here, it would do us no good if, if that was his only audience. But I think he has a broader audience uh, in mind. He's writing really to the true people of God. The 12 tribes, uh, thinking even of that, those eschatological implications, that there is a, a true Israel. Gentiles have been brought in. We know that from Paul's writings, that, that we have been grafted in uh, with Israel. So James has a broader audience. He's referring here, he's, he's writing here to all the people of God that are there present to read and hear his letter, and by extension, us this morning. Well, the text goes on to further describe who these people were. He, he writes that they were in the dispersion. What does that mean? Well, New Testament, uh, the, the New Testament and also history tell us that the early church, right after its birth, really faced intense persecution uh, at the hands of, of the Roman government. Because their ultimate allegiance was not to the, the Roman government or the emperor, but their ultimate allegiance was to Jesus Christ. They worshipped and served and followed and obeyed him, not the Roman uh, leaders and the Roman emperor. And so what happened as a result of that persecution? Most of us probably know that, that Christians in that period were scattered. 
to fl- they fled the persecution um, as much as possible, and they scattered to other regions uh, outside of Jerusalem, outside that that area of Israel right there. They they scattered throughout the region uh, as an attempt to escape that persecution and to continue to worship the Lord. And that I think is is one of the groups of people, or one of the the ways that that we are to identify this group of people is those who have who to escape the persecution, are scattered and are now forming churches even in other areas and, and gathering to worship the Lord there. And James is writing to minister and speak to those people. I think maybe there's even another uh, way to understand who these people were. Not only were they p- people that were escaping persecution and had been scattered, but I think there's actually more of an intentional dispersion uh, that, that God had in mind for his people. You remember back in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost? You remember who was gathered together there? There were people from all over the area. You remember that's why the, the gift of tongues in that passage was so significant because there were people from all over the world, literally, the known world at that time, gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And that's why it was necessary for the Spirit to come and for all those people to understand what, what the disciples, the apostles, were preaching in their own language. And they gathered together. Listen to this list in, in uh, Acts 2, verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, this is the day of Pentecost, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And we know from Acts chapter 2 that from this group of people, several thousand were, were uh, brought to Christ and added to the church. And after the feast, these people would have, they would have left and after their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast, they would have left and gone back to their own land, gone back to their own city, to their own country. So I don't think it's unfair for us to, to consider even this group of people that were brought in for that feast, had been brought to Christ, and had gone back. And perhaps they're even meeting with with these Jews who had scattered uh, from Jerusalem because of the persecution. And so we have all these believers in Christ, these followers of Christ, one way or another, scattered throughout the region. And here it's almost James, who is a leader in the Jerusalem church, writing to all of them, trying to minister to them wherever they were. Maybe they were small, struggling churches that needed wisdom from the Lord. But James here ministering to all these churches scattered uh, throughout that region. Well, this letter then has much to say to us. Because we too are people of God that have been dispersed. And we're awaiting to be gathered together finally into one body uh, together. You remember just before he left the earth after his resurrection, Jesus gave a command to his disciples And that command is just as true for us today as it was for those who originally heard it. You know the verse as well, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have been sent out by Jesus, by our Lord, to proclaim the gospel to sinners during this period of time that the the Bible refers to as the last days. We have been sent out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we'll see from James' letter, I think one of the one of the points that James is trying to make, and we'll see this week after week as we study through it, is that part of our proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is our living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Living out our faith. What does it look like to have faith? We do it, we show it by living it out. And that's really how we came to the the title that we're using for the series, Living as Redeemed People. What does it look like for those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ to live out their faith before others, that others would see? And of course, at the end of at the end of time when God, all those whom God has called to himself through faith in the work of his Son by the power of his Spirit, we will all be gathered together to worship the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9 and 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And as we look forward to that day in the future, when all God's people will be gathered together to worship Him for all eternity, As we look forward to that day, I pray God would use our study of the book of James to teach us and enable us to live for his glory right here as we are called to help him, to assist him in gathering those people that he will call to himself. I think James has much to say to us about how we live out our faith. And I know and I'm confident that God will use it to minister to our lives as we are called to be part of that, part of his ingathering of people that will be gathered together to worship him uh, at the last day. So that's the author of, of this letter. That is the recipients of this letter. And now I want to spend just a few minutes here in the rest of our time talking about what is the theme giving a little bit of an overview or a preview into some of the things that we will look at in coming weeks. And hopefully um, this will help as as we read it, as we read the next section or even as we read the entire book in preparation for gathering together each week and studying together. Hopefully understanding a bit of this overall theme of living out our faith, living as redeemed people, will help us as we just come to a paragraph or a verse, and understand what it means in light of our responsibility to live out our faith. One thing you'll notice as you read through the book is that James is a very practical book, full of exhortations, full of commands, commands to do certain things, commands to not do certain things. So it's clear from James's letter that God wants to communicate 
that God is concerned about the way that we're living, what we're doing. James is full of those kind of practical exhortations. It's probably one of the reasons why so many verses in James are committed to memory. There's very helpful things James has to say about the way that we're to live. What's interesting is James really doesn't spend a whole lot of time laying out a theology and then connecting his theology to the way that we are to live. But on the other hand, I don't think it's appropriate for us to say, well, James wasn't concerned about uh, our theology. He was only concerned about the way that we live. Hopefully, if you have gathered with us enough and have studied the Scripture with us enough, you know that, that we've, we fully believe there is a connection between what our theology is, what we believe, and what we do. Our theology and our practice, there is a connection. We cannot, we cannot look at our, our practice in isolation from our theology. Or to say it another way, we can't look at the commands that God gives in his word apart from studying who God is and what he has done. So why, why is James seemingly not as concerned with the theology? Well, I think one important thing to keep in mind is the book of James likely was, if not the first, one of the first New Testament letters written. Therefore, it was probably written before any of Paul's writings. We'll look at this in just a second. It was written before even the Gospels were actually written down. So really, James was one of the first letters that we have in the New Testament that God's people received during that period of time. And as I thought about, you know, why, why does Paul spend so much time on theology? You know, if you've read through Paul's letters, pretty much half of it is, is laying out theology, the theology of salvation, and then he gets to the commands, the exhortations. Why is James so different from Paul in that sense? I think one reason perhaps is that when Paul was writing, he had, enough time had passed that he was having to address false teaching and heresy that had crept into the early church. And perhaps when James wrote, uh, there wasn't as great of a need for that uh, because it was, it was a lot closer to uh, the actual uh, origin of the church. But hopefully we'll also see as we, as we study through this, there is theology in this book. And also God has given us the entire canon of Scripture. And so as we study the book of James, we don't want to disconnect James from all the rest of the New Testament. So as we read through and study James, we want to allow our understanding of all of Scripture to inform us as we, as we look at James, as we look at the exhortations in James. So we are to live as redeemed people. That's the theme that we'll find over and over again supported in the book of James. Now just a few minutes here and I want to lay out just some things that we'll, we'll expect to come across. I've just chosen a few. I could have, I could have previewed about every section that we'll, we'll go to see. But I wanted to choose some that I think are really significant. And the first observation that I want to make is the relationship between James' teaching and Paul's teaching. I've just alluded to it a bit uh, here, and, and the focus I want to spend a couple minutes here talking about right now is the difference in James' view of works as they relate to faith in Christ and Paul's view of works as they relate to faith in Christ. Paul's theology of justification by faith alone is very clear 
throughout his writings. You know these verses well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Galatians 2, 15 and 16, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then Philippians 3, 8 and 9, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's view of justification is that it solely comes through the grace of God through faith in the work of Jesus Christ and works play no role whatsoever in it. So what, what's wrong with James then? He And I just read the passage as part of our scripture reading. What's he thinking in James chapter 2 when he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I mean, I thought these guys were acquainted with each other. Incidentally, I think this is a one indication of the authorship of God above humans in writing of Scripture. If this was simply a human document, there wouldn't be this kind of seeming contradiction. Uh, there, they would have been very careful to make sure everything was, was in full agreement and there would be no confusion. But James th- seems to think that works play a more important role in our justification than Paul does. So we have to ask ourselves the question, and, and I'm not going to fully answer the question this morning. That'll, we'll save that for whoever's going to be preaching that section in a few weeks. But what was James trying to communicate? The reason I bring this up this morning is because I think it really fits in with identifying the theme of this letter and what James primarily was trying to communicate to his audience. James was very concerned that that faith is lived out. Faith is something that happens internally in the heart, in relationship to God. But how do we evaluate one's faith? How do we evaluate our own faith? If it's an internal thing that takes place in the heart, we can't see that faith. We can't see faith. It's an abstract thing. But we can see works, which while not contributing to faith, doesn't contribute to our justification, our works do provide evidence of our faith. So what James is saying is not in disagreement with Paul. James is not saying that works merit our standing with Christ, that works are alongside of our faith in, in earning our salvation, but simply that our works, our living out, proves our faith. So the two are not in disagreement, and I think we'll, we'll see that as we study that passage uh, in a few weeks. And this is really one of the reasons why early church uh, theologians and even theologians during the Reformation, you, you know that part of the Reformation, one of their big 
rallying cries was justification by faith alone. And so you can see why men like Martin Luther kind of had a low view of the book of James. It really, it seemed to undermine what God was leading them to see, that justification was by faith alone, not uh, through works. But again, James wanted to communicate that we are to live out our faith. Not only that we are to, but that we will live out our faith. True faith will live itself out through us. Another thing that we're going to see as we study through this and and even as you read through it is the wide variety of topics that James hits on. As I thought about this, it's kind of like a a scriptural buffet. Except maybe, maybe in a negative sense for most of us. We're all going to experience conviction of the Holy Spirit in some area. We're going to see how a believer is to respond to trials and difficulties. See that beginning next week. We're going to see how Christians are to interact with all classes of people for the glory of God. And for those of us who might think that, okay, we got those down, we're okay. We're also going to see how true faith lives itself out with a controlled tongue. That might hit a lot of us. We'll find the power to battle against the adversary in an ungodly world. How do we live in the world to reach the world without being worldly? We'll also find the true, the source of true wisdom. I want to spend just the, the last couple minutes here of viewing the book of James as wisdom literature. And in this sense, many, many people refer to James as kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. I think if you've read through James and are familiar with it, you can kind of see why. There's, there's a bit of a parallel. You know, Proverbs just kind of lists these, uh, these statements. James does much the same thing. Just kind of goes through this list of exhortations, how we are to live. But really the comparison is made, uh, referring to James' wisdom literature, is really just made... Uh, because there's a, a similarity in the form, not necessarily because James is, is, uh, focuses much on wisdom, but James does have some important things to say about true wisdom. James 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then in chapter 3, verse 13 through 17, Who is wise and understanding among you. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be a disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Both of these references to wisdom are in relation to how we live. The first refers uh, really to wisdom with reference to persevering through trials. And the second refers to wisdom in putting away ungodly attitudes and behaviors. So one of James' key points that we want to that we want to highlight even this morning as we preview what we'll see is that true godly wisdom, which is a gift from God, is the only means by which we are able to live out our faith in a way that is pleasing to Him. 
in order to live out our faith, we need true wisdom from God. And I pray that God, through his, by His Spirit, through our study, would grant us this wisdom as we study it together. And as our small groups gather and make applications, we need God's wisdom to understand this. We need God's wisdom to know how to live out our faith in a way that is pleasing to Him. And I pray that God would accomplish that even as we begin uh, in earnest next week, jumping right in to study the book of James. Let's pray together. Lord, we do indeed need your wisdom. Lord, the weight of our responsibility to live out our faith, and as we will see in coming weeks, how radical it is, how hard it is to live out our faith, how far far short we fall. We need your wisdom. We need the power of your Spirit working in and through us. Lord, I'm so thankful that you have given us your Spirit. And I pray that as we study through this letter that you have have breathed out through the human author of James to us this morning and in coming weeks, Lord, would you show us how to live out our faith. You have called us to go out into the world, to be missionaries, to proclaim the gospel. Lord, that's done verbally, but it's also done through our, through our lives. Lord, would you enable us to do both for your glory? And we will trust that you will add to your church those whom you will bring and call to yourself through our testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or would you bless even the rest of our time of worship to you this morning as we gather around the Lord's table to celebrate the work of Christ on the cross, which is really the source of any of this. For he enables us through his work in our behalf. He has brought us into a relationship with God, has given us the Holy Spirit who will empower and enable us to obey your commands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.